First Peter chapter 5. We are almost done with First Peter. In two weeks, uh, we will dive into Jonah. So uh, that will take us through to Advent. So First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the holy history and the epistles that interpret it for us, that these things were written for our instruction that these uh, people that Peter wrote to are examples to us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. That this letter, this epistle reminds us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure and idolatry. But these words also remind us that you are faithful. And so use this to guard us from temptations. Instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. As noted in the pastoral prayer this morning, someone who is a still a member of this church and a child of this church, so to speak, uh, is deployed, taken from the states, placed in a foreign country for the express purpose of serving this country in its military. He is away from home, but he's not in a safe place. He's in a potentially dangerous place. There's danger. Not comfort, not security, not safety. Why do I bring this up? Because in many ways, it is a picture of the Christian life. We have been redeemed by Christ, but we have not been removed from this world. We are in the world, though not of the world. And that has some very serious implications that we need to reckon with if we're to live faithfully in this place. And so our big idea this morning is that the shepherd sends the sheep into spiritual warfare. Now as I, as we walk through this text, I want us to start in the middle of the text and then kind of move out. Because the beginning and the end don't make sense without what's in the center. Although I don't want what's in the center to be central in our thinking, if that makes any sense. I don't want you to be preoccupied with the adversary, but I want you to be preoccupied 
with whom you serve and how you are to serve them. But let's start with the reality that we face a slanderous adversary who seeks our destruction. We can't get beyond this. We must remember that we do indeed face a slanderous adversary who seeks our destruction. Peter has been already addressed in this letter. He's talked about the sinful desires that wage war upon your soul. He's talked about the persecutors that they experience because of their faith. But here now, he kind of at the last minute reveals that there's something worse out there. There's something more formidable that is out there. And he says, your adversary, the devil. Which could be translated, your slanderous adversary. Because devil here is an adjective that modifies, let's see a little bit of grammar for the day, the fact of the adversary. There's a particular kind of adversary who's at work, and it's a slanderous, diabolical enemy or adversary that is at work amongst them and around them. And at first I had a, a thought as I was in my, my office, I was like, is this really referring to the persecutors that are around them, the people who are slandering them to the authorities? And no, it's not that. Because then it would be in the plural. This is singular. This is a singular adversary This is indeed the evil one that Peter speaks about. He's intending for them to recognize that their persecutors are only living in obedience to this far greater opponent or adversary that is there. That he is a liar bent on deception. That great philosopher... Dr. House once said, many times actually, everybody lies. And Jesus would say that everybody lies because their father is the devil and he has been a liar from the beginning. As Jesus said in John's Gospel. And so they've learned to lie, so to speak, from the supreme liar, the supreme deceiver who is at work and is an adversary of the people of God precisely because he is the adversary of God himself. We see some of his work or how he does things at play in places like Revelation 12 where John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. What you should understand by that is Daniel 7 fulfilled. The Son of Man has come before the Ancient of Days and has received the kingdom. But still, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And so part of what Satan's work is, is the accusation of God's people. I dare say, sorry, he's a prosecutor of sorts, but not a credible or One with integrity, he's not always concerned about the truth, but he just wants to accuse. 
He accuses us before God, as we see there in Revelation, but as we also see in the book of Job. In chapters 1 and 2, he comes before God, he presents himself there, and he says, what about this Job? Well, God says, what about Job? And he accuses Job. Well, you know, the only reason Job really serves you is because you are nice to him. Take that away and you'll see what Job is really like is the accusation that Job, uh, sorry, that Satan makes concerning Job. And we are, we should imagine that there are similar accusations made against the rest of God's people, not simply Job. And so part of his work is accusing God's people in the presence of God. But that's not his only accusation. He also accuses God before us. We see this in the Garden of Eden with Eve. Did God really say? Can God be relied upon? Is God really going to do this? His work in deceiving her was primarily intended to erode her trust in God because he painted him as one who's not trustworthy, one who's keeping good from her. He questioned the goodness of God. And so he accused God before to Eve. And he continues to accuse God to us. Can I really trust God? Will He really provide what I think I need? We hear these accusations in our thoughts and they come in part from Him. But He also accuses us to us. He reminds you of your sin, real or imagined, and he speaks to you of it in order to rattle you, to discourage you, to drive you to despair. John Calvin has noted that Satan's aim is to drive the saint to madness by despair. For you see, if he gets you to look at your sin and focus on your sin, you're not thinking of Christ who has suffered for your sin. And so he's drawing your eyes away from Jesus and drawing your eyes, therefore, away from the good news that Jesus has suffered for your sin. The good news that you've been justified. The good news that you're being sanctified. The good news that you will be glorified. He's keeping you from enjoying your salvation by getting you to focus on your guilt, which Jesus has removed. And so Satan engages in the strategy of temptation and affliction. That's normally what he does. But the tactics of how he enacts that may differ based on the person because each of us has different weaknesses. And so this should lead us to believe or to remember that we are sojourning soldiers. He's talked a lot in this letter about being exiles or sojourners. We're not exiled because, or you know, um, we've been sent away someplace. We're not sojourners because we're fleeing from a hurricane, but we're we've been sent by Jesus as soldiers, and we're on a mission, and that really ought to uh, shape how we think about our circumstances, as well as our purpose in life. Now, 
Peter continues. He gives a great picture of our adversary. Our adversary prowls around like a roaring lion. A frightening picture indeed. A roaming and roaring lion. He borrows images from Job as well as from Psalms. In Job 1 and 2, what was it? Satan came from roaming about the earth. We see in places like Psalm 17, as well as the, the many references I have uh, there from the Psalms in your notes, that he is like, uh, this is referring to the enemies of the psalmist, he is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in the ambush. And if that's true of the human adversary, it is much more true of the spiritual adversary that we face. So Satan is like a roaring, roaming lion. Which got me to thinking. And so I typed into Google, lion's roar. Did you know that a human being can hear a male lion's roar for up to five miles? That's one loud roar when he really lets go, you know? How much more can animals hear it to know of the presence of a lion? Why does a lion roar? There are a couple of different reasons why lions roar. One of them is so that the lion can let the rest of his pride know where he is or she is. Okay? I'm over here. It's also a warning to lions from another pride not to come close. You recognize the voices of those in your family, right? So do they. (laughs) They recognize one another's roar. And when it's someone else's roar, they know to be on the alert. There is a transgressor, a trespasser nearby. But another reason they roar is that they don't have a whole lot of endurance. They hunt by stealth. And it's interesting to watch videos of them lurking. And you'd think, how can a lion hide? And yet they do. And these other animals don't see them there. But oftentimes, if it's a fleet enemy they or prey, they'll roar to scare the enemy, the prey. I don't know why I keep saying enemy. Scare them so that they don't have to chase them. Gives them that moment to leap and to clamp down their jaw upon its neck. And so the roar serves a number of purposes, and one of them is to scare their prey, to stun them into inactivity because of panic. They lie in wait to do this for an unsuspecting victim, and so lions are very opportunistic, and they were to understand that the evil one is also opportunistic. He sets snares. He sets traps. We see allusions to this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, amongst other places. And he's doing this because he's seeking someone to devour. This adversary is deadly dangerous. He's not looking to spook you. He's not looking to scare you. He's not looking to make your day difficult. He's not content 
to stick with the image of a lion, to scratch you or to wound you. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour God's people just like Babylon devoured Israel, Judah. We see that in Jeremiah 4, if we have ears to hear. Why lions? There are other predators that are about, but I think that it's partly because lions are one of the few animals that actually hunt humans. There aren't many predators. Bears don't hunt humans. Bears will maul you if you happen to threaten them at particular times. But lions will actually hunt humans. They also were probably familiar of, and maybe they've even seen some of the Roman games and known about the people thrown to lions. And it's meant to stir up this very frightening image for a very good reason. The accusations of the evil one, the lies of the evil one are meant to disrupt and upset you so that you may not enjoy your salvation, that you may feel that you're in fear of losing your salvation, that you've never had your salvation. We'll get to that in a little bit. So we live our faith in the midst of a faithless place hunted by an angry, slanderous adversary. Got to be upfront about that. The rest of this doesn't make sense unless we're facing such an adversary. But I don't want our focus to be, again, on the adversary. But I do want you to live like you have a deadly adversary. Because you do. Live like you have a deadly adversary. Live in keeping with reality. And this adversary explains Peter's urgency at the beginning of this paragraph. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. He kind of just spits out these two commands to them. Both of which have to do with being alert. With being thoughtful. With being on guard. The soberness of, of life. They're to be like watchmen who know that death lurks in the darkness. And therefore, they must be vigilant in their duties. The verbs are plural. They're not singular. You're not alone, in other words. This is to the entire community. The entire community is meant to be watchful, to be sober-minded, to be alert. You are not alone. You are not Jason Bourne as much as we might enjoy those movies and his ability to fight alone, you are not meant to do that. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. That's why I get confused when people talk about Lone Ranger Christianity. It is not what has to do with the fact that he was alone. This means he was the only ranger, but he had his friend Tonto. Tonto bailed him out. Tonto was the reason he was alive. We're not alone. And so as you hear this, don't think of this simply as an, in an individualistic fashion, but recognize that this also plays out within family and within church. Okay? You have to be alert together, not simply alone. Scary adversaries 
especially ones that roar really loud, produce panic. And when you panic, you do dumb things. 2004, we weren't, we weren't in Florida for Charlie, but we came back from vacation and we were greeted by the news that here comes another hurricane. hearing that it was bigger than Charlie, and seeing the damage that Charlie had already wrought upon our community, uh, I panicked. And so I was trying to uh, clone my computer hard drive. And in my urgency, I went the wrong way. And being the person who doesn't always back up his computer in the first place, I lost months of work that never got replaced. (laughs) Panic. Panic makes you do really foolish things. And Peter wants them to be aware. Peter wants them to be alert. But Peter doesn't want them to panic. Precisely because they are not alone. And it's not just as we'll see that they have each other, but it's that they have Jesus. But let us keep in mind as we ponder this a little that our sojourn is not a luxury cruise or a European vacation. That doesn't mean you should never go on a cruise or a vacation. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is that There's probably a reason that God has providentially hindered me from going on a cruise. And that's because I would give in to those besetting sins of sloth and gluttony. I would probably just sit there by the buffet the entire time and sleep in my bed the rest of the time. Okay? Our sojourn here is not one that we are meant to uh, pursue comfort and pursue ease, but it is one in which we are intended to engage. It is a deadly, dangerous sort of sojourn that requires constant vigilance. It's only football. But during the celebrations after winning the Super Bowl, I'm glad Charles Garland isn't here to feel bad about that, Bill Belichick could be heard saying, no days off. No days off. That's kind of a joke. Our sojourn is one in which there are no days off because our adversary doesn't take days off. And so we're not to be occasionally vigilant, but constantly vigilant. And so Peter then mentions the adversary and then he says, resist him. Oppose him. Withstand him. Don't capitulate to him. Don't negotiate with him. Don't make friends with him. Resist. Key right here. It's not resist temptation. It's resist him. Resist the evil one. And I think that's important. Because there are times in the Christian life where you are intended to make strategic retreats. You are intended to uh, pretend like it's Dunkirk and live to fight another day. You are not to 
say, I can resist this temptation. You are to flee temptation. You see this, Second Peter. Sorry, Second Timothy, wrong book. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are times to flee Flee your computer because you want to use it to satisfy desires that shouldn't be satisfied in that way, whether it's pornography or shopping. Trying to ease the pain of life in these various ways. You're not just just trying to tough it out, but you can flee. That's one of the things God tells us to do. Flee temptation. So, we are to be um, knowledgeable of His designs. We are to be knowledgeable, so as as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, we are not outwitted by Satan because we are ignorant of his designs and purposes and strategies. And so there is a sense in which, and I'm going to get to resist in a moment, but we are to learn to fight our particular temptations by talking with experienced fighters. And so a helpful book, perhaps, is Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. It's one you should probably own and read periodically so that you are better understanding His designs as well as God's precious remedies for those. Recognize, for instance, that you are vulnerable. One of the things that most addicts hear is the acronym HALT, which stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. Why would you want to be especially careful when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Because you're more vulnerable to temptation. Why are you more vulnerable to temptation? Because you are experiencing some level of pain. And guess what? That's what the evil one does. He comes to those who are in pain and tries to get them to to numb that pain apart from bringing it to Jesus. And that's how addictions play out. You feel lonely, so you eat a half gallon of ice cream. You're angry, so you go on a shopping spree. This is what we do. This is how Satan can tempt us at times. But back to resistance. It's interesting because in the parallel text that we looked at last week from James 4, he says, submit to God, humble yourself, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so the devil in some ways is like a bully who doesn't like a real fight. So resist. Resistance, brothers and sisters, is an act of faith. Resistance is not an act of the flesh. For we see that Peter reminds them to resist the evil one firm in faith. Relying, in other words, relying on Jesus to stand. 
We see a similar sort of phrase in Colossians 1, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so there's that, there's that idea of we stand resisting, not shifting from the hope we have, but being um, ever reminded and ever aware of the hope of the gospel so that we remember that we fight an adversary who's been defeated, for instance. Prideful people will will rely upon themselves, their own strength, they'll rely upon their own plans, and they will lose. But if we humble ourselves and rely upon God's power, we have the assistance we need from God to resist the evil one. We resist as well by making use of the full armor of God as we saw in Ephesians chapter 6. We, we resist not just in faith, but we resist by opposing lies with truth. We resist with His accusations of our guilt with the reality of Christ's righteousness. We resist with Him his temptations or accusations that we're not saved with the helmet of salvation. We're saved by the work of Christ, not by my own merit at all. We resist with the gospel. We resist with the spirit. We resist with the sword of the spirit, which is, of course, the word of God. And so we resist as people who are clad in the armor of God. Not people who are dressed for work or for a day at the gym, but rather the armor of God. Do you put on the armor of God each day? We need to. Resist by making use of the means of grace. Because that's exactly what you need, grace. And so seek that grace. So often people in times of hardship withdraw from the church, which is the very time you need to be worshiping because you need someone to come alongside you and remind you of the greatness of Jesus Christ so you can continue to fight. A left on your own, you will perish. And so it's important for us to gather and to worship. It's important for us to pray. Think even of what we prayed this morning. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we see the necessity of prayer as part of how we resist. We bring the word to expose the lies through the truth. We resist him in part as well by knowing that we're not alone, not just in that squad, but also that there are that others experience the same kind of suffering. Whether it's people in the past in church history or whether it's people in the present, know that you are not the only one that has experienced this and you are not the only one that God will preserve. And so while we don't resist persecutors, we do resist the adversary 
and his lies by faith. Let's dig a little deeper into how we're able to resist. We are to call on Christ to strengthen us under trial. You see, soldiers on the field are not alone. The son of the church that is, that is deployed right now, he's not alone. He's got his own squad. He's on a base, but that base is supplied from other supply bases. So they have the ammunition they need. They have the water they need. They have the food that they need. They have the spare parts that they need so they can fulfill the mission. But not only that, but they have packages from home. People that love them, who send them things, people who call them and talk with them and encourage them. They're not alone. And so we see the same sort of thing. We, we have a future hope. Just as soldiers are encouraged by the hope of being home one day and being with their loved ones, we have this future hope. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into His eternal glory. We have an eternal hope of glory that should encourage us while we are under pressure. We are here precisely because we have been called by God. We're not experiencing uh, this affliction because we've called ourselves, but because God has called us to Himself that we experience the accusation of the enemy. We're there because of who we serve, not because of who we are in and of ourselves. We have this hope of eternal glory. Let's pause for a moment and see who was pictured here. The God of all graces. This is the one who called us. The God of all graces. Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's grace at the beginning when he loses his burden and he's on his way to the celestial city which encourages him to keep walking. In between, there's all kinds of conflict and in the midst of all that conflict, God continually grants him grace. In various forms and in various ways, God gives him grace. And that is the way the Christian life is lived, dependent always upon the grace of God found in Jesus Christ as we move from conversion to glorification. And so when Peter talks about this, this, this grace, he piles up these verbs that he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These are four verbs that he's using to describe the particular graces that they need in the midst of resisting the devil. They all stress our security in God's grace in the midst of conflict, which is important. We need to know that the supply lines are open. That some way God is going to provide the grace that we need when we need it. One of my pastor friends in Florida this morning in Orlando, the, he went out one last time because he was stir-crazy before the storm hits. And he stopped by the church one last time to make sure that everything was kind of closed up. And he found a man sitting in his car in the parking lot. And so he said, hi. And the man said, I'm afraid. So I'm looking at the cross. 
he drove out there with anticipation of the storm and needing grace and was focused upon Christ and him crucified. The supply lines are open precisely because Christ has been crucified and raised. And his work, he continues this work to bring the work of salvation to completion, not in spite of the trial, but through the trial. He stabilizes us when we're ready to spiral out of control with fear and worry. He stabilizes us when the evil one roars like a lion. When we're weak, he strengthens us so that we're able to continue. And he continually establishes us or lays us on the foundation of his grace. And so the reason that we're able to resist, the reason that we're able to persevere, the reason that we're able to to win is all about Jesus. Jesus who came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus who put them all, all of those spiritual enemies to shame through his work on the cross, triumphing, triumphing over them. That is one of those words I always struggle to say. It's all about Jesus. And because we're united to Jesus, we have these graces. And so Peter wraps up this paragraph with a benediction. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. To Him be dominion because Jesus has won. To Him be dominion because Jesus is winning. To Him be dominion because Jesus is ruling In other words, you're on the winning side. The war, the end of the war is not in doubt. Fresh courage take. Even though it's difficult. And so the Christian life is one of a sojourning soldier deployed into enemy territory. And this enemy seeks to destroy, particularly through deception. And so we are to resist those lies, resist those accusations that are made against God and against ourselves. This does not mean that you're able, but it means that ultimately Jesus has won and that Jesus continues to supply the grace you need so that you don't have to roll over as if you're defeated. Jesus provides the armor that you need. Jesus is the conquering king who leads his people into victory. And so, have you embraced the reality of life during wartime? Or do you still have a hope for cruise line Christianity? My hope is that you will embrace the teaching of the scriptures so that you will be alert And you'll be seeking grace. Let's pray. Father, help these words to be words of grace to your people. That they would be looking to Jesus when the lion roars. And that they would know that there's a bigger, better lion the line of the tribe of Judah. 
who is waiting but able to put this mother lion in its place. Father, in the midst of our uh, struggle, which all of us should feel, help us not to lose hope. Help us not to lose heart. But help us to remember what Christ has done for us, what Christ is doing for us even now, and what Christ has promised to do for us in the future. The partaking in of, of eternal glory with Him who is eternally glorious. We ask this in his name. Amen.